Hello and welcome to this week's episode of All Over Sport Podcast. I'm James. And I'm Dom. So Dom, until we get a dedicated fan base, can you <laughs> remind people of the format of the show? Yes, James. Well, we're going to start off by going all around the world to find out the most weird and interesting sports headlines from this week uh, all around the world. Uh, then we're going to talk about a brand new sport in the Discover section. Uh, then we're going to go into the debate section where we're going to talk about uh, a big sporting topic at the moment uh, and discuss that. And then we're going to have our little factoids, which are going to interject throughout the show. So a factoid on a particular country or a team, a factoid on a sporting person, and a factoid on a sport itself. And then at the end, we're going to judge who had the best facts. Well, such a solid format. Let's crack on <laughs> with the episode. So James, a lot of sport this weekend. What did you manage to watch? So I managed to catch the final of the Rugby World Cup. Yes. And then in the afternoon, I was watching some of the Premier League football. I didn't watch the whole of the rugby, I have to admit. Caught a bit of the second half. On the first half, I was on a train. So that was my excuse. For not watching. Such, a, <laughs> such a dedicated sport <laughs> podcaster we have here. <laughs> but then the, the second half, we, I kind of watching, watched it on and on because we kind of lost by then anyway. So Yeah, I, w- yeah. I wasn't particularly too happy. No, as the second indeed. half unfolded. And I caught, I caught a bit of the Formula One oh, right, as well. Okay. Uh, Lewis Hamilton winning his sixth title, one behind Michael Schumacher for best ever. So, very impressive. All right, all right. Well, yeah. I guess we should probably do the international news roundup of the show. That's normally where we kick this off. Absolutely. So, um, I'll start now. Last week, if you heard our uh, last episode, I mentioned the European team chess championships that were being held in Georgia. Now, I said last week that the favourites were Russia, and guess what? They won both the men's and the women's. So, in the men's, they beat uh, Ukraine, who came second. England came third, actually, very impressively. And in the women's, the host, Georgia, came second, and Azerbaijan were third. All right. Well, in Asia, they recently had the Malaysia MotoGP with... And I think this is a wonderful name. Mm. Maverick Vinales of Spain Maverick. was was victorious, mm. uh, racing for Yamaha, um, completed the circuit in 40 minutes, 14 seconds. Unfortunately, the race was overshadowed by the tragic passing of Indonesian rider Munadar, who died from injuries sustained in a crash in the Asia Talent Cup. Terrible. Um, Well, in the Americas, it was the Triathlon World Cup. That finishes this week in the Dominican Republic. So there's one stage left. Ai Ueda of Japan is leading for the women and Manuel Messias of Brazil is leading the men. Now, the other week we discussed in the show jumping in America, we were talking about the prize money. I think it was something like $600,000 they won for winning the New York Cup in show jumping. Guess how much the winners win in the Triathlon World Cup if they come first? I'm going to go very low and say 50 grand. It's the equivalent of $7,500. That's all they win. For all of that effort, $7,500. And there's loads of different stages. It takes place loads of different cities. And each stage is 750 meter swim, 20k bike, 5k run. And they win seven and a half grand. Not much at all. Not much at all. Uh, And in Oceania, uh, I'm sure many people will be aware of futsal, which is the sport which is essentially an indoor five-a-side football. 
Now, the Futsal World Cup is next year in Lithuania, and in Oceania they had their Nations Cup to see who would qualify for the World Cup, and it was won by, guess who it was, James? Oceanian country? Um, Papua New Guinea. Solomon Islands. Okay. The Solomon Islands beat New Zealand in a penalty shootout in the final, and... Little interesting fact here for you. Not to, nothing to do with sport, but the Solomon Islands is one of the only countries in the world that begins and ends with the same letter. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. I'm going to have to be a bit honest because <laughs> I struggled with news from Africa this week because it was so dominated by South Africa's success at the Rugby World Cup. Absolutely. But I'm going to... It's a bit of a cop-out <laughs> because I watched a video on a team from Senegal, which is in Africa. That is in Africa. Um, and they're excited about some certain news that will affect everyone, essentially, compete in the Olympics. Oh. And it's the International Olympic Committee voted on Tuesday Just Gone in favour of a proposal that could bring breaking, which is another word for break dancing, oh. to the 2024 Summer Games in Paris. Obviously, wow. it still has to be finalised, but that could be a real change, a real a, a real big change to the Olympic programme. We've already climbing, skateboarding and surfing, making their debuts at next year's World Cup in Tokyo. Great dancing. Wow, that would be very interesting to watch. Uh, and that was the International News Headline Roundup. So, first up in our interesting factoids, we're going to do the person this week and the person we've chosen to go with is Ben Ainsley amazing sports person so for those who don't know who Ben Ainsley is he's one of the most successful sailors in Olympic history he won medals at five consecutive Olympics from 1996 onwards including gold at the four games held between 2000 and 2012 so he is a very big deal absolutely huge so I'm going to go first on with my interesting yeah. fact, and it's actually about Ben Ainsley's father, who was called Roderick, I believe. Oh, I hope that's correct. I've always <laughs> that undermined the whole fact. But anyway. Ben's not listening, don't <laughs> worry. Um, his father, captain of boat that took part in the first Whitbread round-the-world race in 1973. So clearly, sailing is in his blood. Mm. The race started in Portsmouth down to Rio de Janeiro, and it lasted in overall 133 days and 13 hours. Wow, that's amazing! And so, yes, sports, uh, sailing is definitely in the in the family. Well, I'm my fact is kind of on the same wavelength to do with Ben Ainsley's family, in that he is also married to somebody in sport, uh, Georgia Thompson or Georgia Ainsley, as she now is, uh, is his wife, and she was a very famous Sky Sports presenter. She was also on a League of Their Own. She was a pundit. Pundit. It was a quiz show, wasn't it? A panellist. Panellist. That's a good word on that James Corden show. Uh, and yeah, and they've been married for a few years now. So just to say, I googled it. And it <laughs> is Roderick Ainsley. Very well done. Very well remembered. <laughs> right, let's move on. So now we're going to move on to the Discover section of the episode where we're going to talk about a brand new sport. So this week's sport is going to be slightly closer to home. It's called Eton Fives. So, James, why don't you introduce it for us? Yeah, so before I do that, go into Eton Fives, just want to kind of caveat that when Dom says close to home, it's not in like an emotional, heartfelt sense, is it, Dom? Mm. It's just geographically found close to where we are presently. In comparison to Switzerland last week. So... <laughs> 
Eton Fives. Now, the history of Eton Fives is that it dates back to the 18th century, I believe, and was founded yeah. at the school Eton. And it all started, and there's various anecdotal stories about how it kind of came about. But it started outside the chapel in the main square of Eton School, where supposedly all the students would line up, all the boys would line up for the chapel, and one day someone just had a ball and they threw it against a wall, and that's kind of about how Eton Fives came about. On top of that, some people said it was due to them keeping warm, they were throwing a ball, slapping it against the wall. So that's kind of the his- the, the foundations of Eton Fives. It's a very old game, mm. and it's very simplistic in its nature and how it started. And I believe... the. the Today's courts still resemble the stairs of that Eton College Chapel, don't they? He's he's gone straight in there. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, so kind of how to describe Eton 5. So it's a handball-type game, and I think I said to you, Dom, it's like squash with your hands. I think that's, yeah, that's the simplest way to to put it. Yeah. yeah. So it takes place on a three-sided court, and it's still in the modern in the same way outside the church. So... It's quite difficult if you're not into, like, ancient architectural, romantic, (laughs) gothic. I don't know what it is. Um, But so you imagine you have a three-sided court, and on that court you have a buttress, which is like a pillar at the side, an L-shaped pillar. So that was kind of the staircase towards the church. You have a thin ledge running across the midpoint of the court, and then the court is also divided into two steps, I believe. Um, and so, as you can see, it's a bit of a, a hassle, a hazardous course, and um, it kind of adds to kind of the fun of Eton Fives. Mm. Now, I believe there's very few courts internationally of uh, in Eton Fives. Yeah, absolutely. It's very rare outside the UK. Um, it, it's limited almost to just individual courts based in different countries. So, for example... There's one famous court in Australia in a school called Geelong Grammar, which has been described as. Do you mean Geelong? I believe that's how it's pronounced. That that may well. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Australian (laughs) fans, we have. Um, But uh, yes, which is often referred to as the Eton of Australia. Uh, There are individual courts in like Switzerland, India, Malaysia. There's two courts in France so really not many at all although apparently according to the Eton College website it is incredibly popular in Nigeria where it's played in the thousands so yeah Eton Fives is an extremely fast game it requires a lot of agility rather than strength because you have to be very skillful to play Eton Fives and if you are ambidextrous you have a huge advantage and kind of talking about the skill Cast your mind back to how the court's kind of laid out with that L-shaped buttress. There's an angle in which, in the corner of the buttress, where it would be like where the staircase meets the wall, there's a thing called Dead Man's Hole. And if you aim for it, the shot is totally unreturnable. But it requires a great deal of accuracy to be able to get into that space. So how Eton Fives is scored... Um, each team needs to score 12 points to win a game and it needs three and they need three games to win a match. There's no referee either so it's based on people being fair judges of one another's game. I think it's important to say as well that when you watch it, I watched a few clips online. It to the untrained eye it looks like complete madness. It looks like they're 
They don't know what they're doing. They're bumping into each other. Running, It looks crazy. But when you look at it in more detail, you can really see actually how skillful it requires. And it, it really does look a very intricate sport. Yeah, and it's really important in such a small space what makes Eaton Fives that much, let's say, that more technical is that that relationship is pairs. So you have to be able to know who's going to hit where and be in the best position to deal with the response. Now, Eaton Fives is a modest spectator game. Would you say that's fair, Dom? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, there's a uniqueness to it where you are aiming to get points, but at the same time, if there's a really good rally go, you want to keep that going. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I, th- I think that's the same with most similar sports like racket, sports like tennis or badminton or anything like that. When you do have a really great rally, it's such a great thing to watch as a spectator. And I think it's important to note as well with this sport, it is completely amateur. There's no like professional players or there are leagues, but it's all it, it, it's all amateur because it is such a small it played in such a small scale group as such. There's actually as well many variants to Eaton Fives or other handball type games. So there's also Rugby Fives, Winchester Fives, American Handball, Irish Handball, and there's also a Basque version of the game, Pelota Vasca. Wow. Oh, fair enough. And um, in terms of tournaments that are played, there are quite a few different competitions. The most sought after, though, is the Kinnard Cup, which started back in 1924, which was uh, named after Lord Kinnard, who presented the first cup. Um, Now, Tom Dunbar, don't know if you're listening, Tom, you might be, but you are the most successful Kinnard Cup player of all time because you've won it 15 times including nine times in a row from 2011 to this year in 2019 i feel like he knows that <laughs> <laughs> and he was in the last nine times he's played with the same partner as well um yeah. oh is that uh seb cooley i believe you're absolutely right james <laughs> i think as well what's great about eaton fives is that it's an incredibly accessible sport so whilst it started off in the grounds of a, a private school, actually what we're seeing is it started to come a bit more, well, dare, I'm not going to say the mainstream, but it, the mere fact it simply involves a ball and a wall, I think it's a sport of slow growth. Yes, uh, absolutely. And it's not, it, again, like we mentioned about the sports in the past, it's not going to make the Olympics anytime soon. But it is certainly something that if you have the right equipment... It is relatively simple to just start playing on your own. So if you're interested, do have a look at some of the Eaton Fives game, especially the Kinnard Cup, which, again, was this year, a few months ago. So check it out. It's a really interesting sport. Very fast, very quick, so much agility, very skillful. Would highly recommend. Absolutely. Right, let's move on. So our next factoid is about a particular country. And the country this week we've chosen to go with is Chile. Chile. So I'm going to go first, Dom, with my fact about Chile. So the Chilean rodeo is the national sport dating back to... Well, it was recognised the national sport in 1962 by the National Council of Sports and the Chilean Olympic Committee. And with the uh, Chilean rodeo, the annual Campeonato Nacional de Rodeo that sounded so unspanish. De, de rodeo. Uh, de rodeo. National de rodeo. Is a <laughs> nationwide better. rodeo championship in Rancagu. 
<laughs> Again, that's no not Spanish. No efforts. Where the top prize is two and a half million Chilean pesos. Okay. So okay. So rodeo there. Well, actually, mine is to do with sprinting, uh, hundred meters, um, because Chile were the only Latin American nation at the first ever Olympic Games in Athens, eighteen ninety six. They had one sprinter in the whole Olympics, and he ran the hundred meters, the four hundred meters, and the eight hundred meters. Didn't win any of them, unfortunately, but. Um, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so now we're going to move on to the debate section of the show. Now, it's appropriate this week to talk about the Rugby World Cup, just finished, of course, in Japan. But this has been a huge World Cup for rugby because it's been the first ever World Cup held outside the Commonwealth or Ireland or France uh, in Japan, of course. So we're going to talk about the impact, really, of rugby in Japan. So, yeah, let's um, briefly touch upon the disappointment of last weekend, wasn't it, Dom, where yes. England lost the final to South Africa. They did. They did. 12-32. I have to admit, I didn't feel as confident as, and I know you're going to blame me for saying it, but the Cricket World Cup for this summer... No, no, stop, stop. I, I insist that you stop because the amount of... You can't weasel cricket into every, every point. Look, I'm, you know, we're going to park that and I'm going to veto cricket being mentioned for the rest of this segment. Fine. So, what I wanted to kind of talk about is how the Rugby World Cup may change the course of rugby, not just in Japan, but also in Asia. And I think what would be quite useful is we kind of set a bit of context of the history of rugby in Japan, kind of how it's played currently, reflect a bit on the success of the World Cup, and then look forward to the future for rugby union in Japan. So rugby in Japan first kicked off in the era of colonialism. And primarily, as Dom touched upon, rugby has been focused on eight to ten teams, mostly from Europe, including South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. The problem with rugby union in Japan is that historically they've been quite unsuccessful. Mm. And the cause of that can be down to probably the lack of funding. And actually, the problem can be boiled down to the lack of funding, the lack of popularity, and probably the overall organisation, kind of the governance of how rugby union has been run in Japan. So when you think of Japanese sports, I don't know about you, Don, but I mainly think about football. And you can probably name a few footballers like Nakamura or mm. Kagawa, some big, big name Japanese players. But you probably couldn't talk about rugby union players in the same way. No, definitely not. And for a country of 126 million, only 92,000 registered rugby players. Wow. And that's ten. And there's ten times more registered footballers compared to that. I think that's yeah. I I, I think you'd understand that because yeah, Japan's national football team have been in the World Cup. Quite a few times. It's, yeah, it is and they've been big. very competitive in the World Cup. And you can kind of say that the problem has to go back to when they're in schools. And in Japan, they have a system called the Bukatsu system, in which a student, a child, has to choose one sport and stick with it for their entire uh. academic year. But also, so kind of looking at the popularity and probably the minimal funding, because it's probably gone into other sports like football, is a problem with the overall governance of rugby union. So 
What there is at the moment, there's an overarching governing body for the Asian continent, but the problem there being is that it spans as far as Jordan, Indonesia, and so it doesn't take into account the diversity of sport in Asia. So in essence, there's not been a focused approach to how to kind of promote rugby union. And what we've seen is that with the funding, especially coming from these overarching organising bodies, is that it's not getting down to the grassroots. There's not really the facilities for rugby union to flourish. Now, what we've seen is this has ultimately led to Japan has been the most dominant Asian force in rugby. With In the Asian World Championships, they've won 25 out of the 50 championships in 1969. But on the international stage, they haven't been that successful. And what's worth noting, actually, is Japan, shown that it's the most successful nation, is that it's ranked 8th in the world. Yeah. But you have to go down to Hong Kong, ranked 24th, and Korean 31st. So clearly... It's not that big a deal. Absolutely. And uh, actually, I did a bit of digging about rugby in other Asian countries. And some Asian countries it began rugby from when it came over with the British Empire. Like India started playing in 1870. In the Middle East, it's pretty non-existent, really. Israel is the only Middle Eastern team to actually be included in the world rankings. So Hong Kong... Uh, uh, relatively big with rugby sevens but not so much in rugby as you say down in the mid-twenties so it's really not that big a thing in the rest of the continent and actually um, Asian countries only started to even attempt to qualify for the World Cup back in 1991 and then they were partnered with countries from Oceania Australasia so countries like Australia and New Zealand who would obviously dominate them so it really hasn't yeah, in the rest of Asia, other than Japan, it's really not that big a thing at all. And then you've got to kind of look at the game domestically. So in Japan, they have 16 domestic top top flight teams, but it's semi-professional, so it's not overly competitive. And they only they have a, a limited season, a short season, with games not really attracting to more than 5,000 spectators. Now... What you have with Japanese rugby, they do have a big team called the Sun Wolves, but the Sun Wolves are kind of a case study of the problem with Japanese rugby, and they compete in a tournament called the Super Rugby, which is with teams from South Africa and Australia, what have you. But from 2021, due to a lack of funding, the team will cease to exist. And they're basically the Japanese national team. Most of the players play for the Sun Wolves. You can say that a lot of this stems as well due to the fact they don't really have an academy system like we have in England and Australia, so there's no really young talent coming through to make the league that competitive. And what you're seeing with the domestic league is it relies a lot on overseas exports. So big names like Dan Carter, the New Zealander, or Shane Williams, the uh, Welsh rugby player, they've gone over there to kind of boost the profile, but it kind of shows that it's a retiring ground for rugby players. But what we've seen is actually this has led to disappointment on the international stage as well and it, that's not surprising to be honest so looking at japan national team i mean you let's go back to 2003 when england run the world cup and they could have added it this year but <laughs> it, it didn't happen so they became they were bottom of their pool with four losses in 2003 they came second bottom in 2007 because they drew with canada um results did pick up in some of the the, the more local region to tournaments like the Pacific Nations Cup. However, disappointment kind of continued in 2011. But it was at 2015 when there's a real turning point in Japanese rugby. And that can be attributed to Eddie Jones. So he's the, uh, the current 
coach of the England national team. And what we saw at the 2015 World Cup was Japan stunned South Africa with a last-minute try, and they won 34-32. And that, that was seen as one of the biggest upsets in mm. rugby union history due to the fact that they were winless in the World Cup since 1991 before that. Yeah, and I think actually the fact that they, the fact that they hosted the World Cup itself is absolutely massive. And I think it's actually a bit of a shame that the next World Cup is going to be in France because I think they could have had this massive opportunity to take it to another country similar to Japan that haven't been that big in rugby and try to spread it out a bit more amongst those countries that may not be as big with it, but to give them the opportunity to host as well rather than just give it back to a country like France. No, I think I think I think you're right there. And I think what they did with this World Cup bid, it was seen as give it to Japan to kind of promote rugby in Asia. And I think it's it has done that. And especially what has really helped with promoting rugby in Asia is the Japanese national team. So the success of the, the team in this tournament has been surprising to say the least they managed to reach the quarterfinal and they eventually lost in the quarterfinal to winners South Africa but they did register some quite impressive wins over Ireland and Scotland now when I was watching the Japanese national team what was really impressive was the acceleration the agility of the players their their handling skills the the, the sheer speed of their offloads there's quite a lot of attacking flair and nim- nimbleness? nimbleness? Yeah, that's a word. <laughs> <laughs> but their major kind of big strength is their fitness. Now, what I found is some stats yep. provided by Opta, and they said Japan's ball in play time averaged almost 37 minutes in the team's first four matches, which is well above the tournament's average of less than 34. Oh. As well, we can kind of see how there's been a real change in performance, well, how they manage performance in Japan with it being said that... So preparing for the 2015 World Cup, the players weighed, on average, 8 to 13 kilograms less than their main opponents. So, mm. But the gap is narrowing. Previously, they were a very light team. But yeah. what we're seeing is the average weight now of a Japanese starting 15 is 98 kilograms, whereas South Africa, it's 103 kilograms. So you can see there's a whole nutritional element and conditioning that's coming in. And what's been great about seeing Japanese success and the way they've approached the game differently is that has led to more fans. And we've estimated 54 million people tuned into the quarterfinal. Wow. And tickets sold about 1.8 million compared yeah. to that in the UK, which sold 2.4. And it was amazing as well to watch. I think they put on a fantastic show and they really did that have injection of Japanese culture in there. One, one final question I would like to ask you before we sort of wrap this up is do you think the fact that it's taken a while for rugby to kick off in Asia, maybe one of the reasons why it's not kicked off so well in other parts of the world as well, like Africa, South America, North America, is because it is very much dominated by a small group of countries, like about four or five countries who win pretty much everything. Even like a country like Wales, who you think of being a huge rugby nation, haven't won the World Cup. Yeah, I think that that's right. Exactly. They can't look for, let's say, role models, for lack of a better word. But to quickly just talk about the future of rugby in Japan. So kind of what we've seen post the World Cup is it's going to become more of a focused effort. So the vice president of rugby in Japan has talked about maybe a new league, longer seasons, funding more teams by selling broadcast rights. They've only really got three purpose-built stadiums, but they need to kind of look into growing the grounds. 
But one thing that is important is that there may be other variants of rugby. So I read about tambo rugby, which is basically people play around in rice fields. It's a non-contact game. We've seen the growth of rugby sevens in Hong Kong, which Absolutely. is really popular. So what, in summary, kind of needs to happen with rug- the rugby in Japan is what we've seen is they benefited from a lot of money, three point one yeah. billion from the from wow. this this tournament alone. It needs to be a focus effort and funding and growth. And actually, a new school is opened up in um, Tokyo, the rugby school from the UK. They're opening an institution of it in Tokyo. So you imagine rugby is going to be a big part of the school program. So yeah. things like that need to happen. Needs to be a focus on grassroots, more funding, and kind of developing the league. Brilliant, and it was a fantastic World Cup as well. Brilliant it was really enjoyable. Excellent. Great. Okay, so now we're going to go on to our final fact of the episode. So this one is going to be about a specific sport. And this week we're going to talk about ice hockey. So my fact, firstly, um, you'd never have thought it because ice hockey is normally always played in the stadium, especially in the NHL. But an NHL game was actually once called off because of rain. So 1995, an NHL game was rained off because the flooding of a nearby river uh, near the San Jose Sharks arena made it dangerous to get to the arena. So it was called off because of rain. Well, my fact is another unlikely event when you think of ice. Yes. So in 1930, a goalie named Abby Goldberry caught fire during oh. a game when a puck hit a pack of matches he was carrying in his pocket. He was badly burned, unfortunately, before his teammates could put out the fire. Wow. God. So, <laughs> seems very irresponsible by Abby Gold. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, of matches. Wow. I guess we've got to decide who won that. Yes. So I would say, Ben Ainsley, fact, I probably had the better I one. I think yours was stronger. I think my chili one was stronger. And then for ice hockey, I think it was very close, actually, it's this very one. Cl- I, but... I'm I'm gonna no, I'm gonna give it to you. I am okay. You know, because I just feel like uh, my chili one was that much weaker. <laughs> Actually, no, your Ben Ainsley one, your Ben Ainsley wife one wasn't that interesting. Actually, no, I, I changed my mind. Well, I'm gonna go myself. I think mine was more interesting. Well, I was going to give it to you. Now okay. I want to give it to myself. But uh, no, go on. I'll, I'll give it to you this week. I like the the go catching fire with the matches in his pocket. I think that was. Yeah, I, I think that's it. That was a very good fact. Well, I think that's a brilliant way to end the show. Thank Absolutely. you for tuning. Hope you enjoyed it and see you next time. Thank you very much.